0: Side Hustle Show 297, Event Hosting, How to Bring Your Tribe Together and Build a Six-Figure Conference on the Side. What's up, what's up, Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because it's all about ideas, action, and results. And how about this for results? My guest today willed a live in-person event into existence. He had more than 200 attendees for that first event, and it was profitable, From day one. By year two, Hung Fam's Culture Summit at culturesummit.co was a six-figure business, all on the side from his day job. The Culture Summit is an annual conference in San Francisco, all about how to cultivate and improve the internal culture within companies. It was the event Hung wanted to attend himself, having been dissatisfied at work for a long period of time, but found that it didn't exist. So he created it. Stick around in this episode to hear how Hung validated the idea for his conference, how he sold his first tickets, and how he's grown this little side hustle event to have attendees from five continents and where he wants to go from here notes and links for this one are at sidehustlenation.com slash hung that's h-u-n-g as well as the highlight reel summary from our call i'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with hung after the interview and the story starts with hung in a meeting with his boss in which he's looking for a little guidance maybe a little coaching on how he and his team can get more engaged at work and have a greater impact on the company's overall mission but that meeting did not go as he hoped ready
1: let's do it she said, Hung, I'm this close from firing you right now. <laughs> Jeez, okay. <laughs> and she said, if you want to to have passion and purpose, you got to look somewhere else. The next 10 years of my career, a lot of jobs I took was either because it paid well or I had a nice title associated with it. But I was always frustrated with the culture and the organizations I worked at. So around 2014, I was so unhappy. And I just remember getting a lot of anxiety on Sunday nights because I dreaded going to work on Mondays. And so I just Googled one day how to be happy at work. And I came across this article about Zappos. And I was really fascinated with how they looked at their culture, their people, how they approach the workplace. And I wanted to learn more. I was so fascinated. And and for me, looking into culture, being an engineer, looking into culture was more of just solving my own challenges with being disengaged. And so there weren't any events on culture. A lot of the events I found were targeted towards HR leaders. And for me, not being an HR, not being a people manager, where does the everyday employee go? So there wasn't anything out there. And I said, you know what, I'll just be the first to put something together. Not the best way to start, but that's just how it started.
0: It was a void for you. It was a void in the market. It was a
1: void, yes.
0: Okay, I'm this close to firing you. That's um, <laughs> that's crazy. If you want passion and purpose, you're gonna have to go find it someplace else. We'll wait to turn lemons into lemonade on this stuff. So, what happens next? You get the idea. This is um, you know, nobody's talking about culture on this type of scale or or outside of just like the HR field. So,
1: what happens next? A year before that, I had been helping a friend run events. So, because I was really frustrated with work and I had just watched The Social Network, the movie about Facebook, and I was really interested in in entrepreneurship. But I didn't have any ideas. I didn't know what to do or where to go. So I had a friend who was running events. He was teaching workshops and he was teaching people how to validate their business ideas using a methodology called the Lean Startup. I was helping him organize events and I had an understanding of how to do events, but his events were like maybe 80 people at most. So I did have some experience. So I think a year later, when I finally came across an article about Zappos, and I saw that there wasn't any events out there, I had some experience doing events. And I felt like, okay, I could probably take a shot at it. And I had never done a conference before. I had never been to a conference before. I had no idea what to expect. But I just felt like, well, if I can organize an event for 80 people, how hard is it to organize an event for like 300 people, right? It's just you know, you you just double things up or triple things up. (laughs) Okay, double the recipe, sure. Yeah, not the case, actually. So my biggest challenge was that I really didn't understand culture from a practitioner's perspective or from someone in a company who was building culture. My experience really just came from being unhappy. Initially, I just thought, oh, culture comes from the top. It comes from the founders because it's their company. And a lot of the messaging I, I created, a lot of the marketing I created and, and trying to target founders, it was just completely wrong. I, I couldn't sell any tickets for the first three months. And I wasn't sure what I was doing wrong. And, and I had to take a step back and think about who should I be talking to or doing customer development to understand who has these issues about culture and who are people that actually go to these events. It could be the founders, it could not be the founders.
0: Okay. So at this point, had you like picked a date a year in advance, put up a little placeholder website and you're trying to sell tickets? Yeah,
1: so so the good thing is that when I was helping my friend organize events and teaching Lean Startup, I actually learned it myself, uh, which is a really great methodology for being able to take an idea and just quickly validate it, right? A lot of times I feel like a lot of people feel when they have an idea, to have to have it fully fleshed out before they put it out to the market and which by that time it's way too late because you don't know... If what you put out there, people are gonna buy or not. So it's easier to just run experiments early on, and then you can course correct as needed. So for for me, helping him run events, learning the methodology, it helped me in in launching my own events. So when I started, it was pretty simple. I didn't have a venue, but I just picked a city. I live in San Jose, which is close to SF. So I just put it's gonna be an SF venue TBD. I knew a couple people, a couple entrepreneurs when i was running events so i asked them as a favor would you you know like to come speak about culture they agreed so i got maybe four to five speakers just enough for me to launch a site and then i use eventbrite which is a free software for ticketing so in terms of cost and overhead very low and the key is to create it in such a way that you can put something out there and begin testing so for me not having to put a deposit on a venue not having to figure out Catering on all those other logistics made it easier to just quickly put something out there and then begin pre selling. Okay. But the pre sales weren't going so hot. Yeah. Yeah. So, first three months, when I launched in September of 2014. By December, I was ready to give up. So, at that time, I had another partner who we partnered on doing this event together. We just couldn't sell any tickets. We were trying to partner with different organizations. We were running a couple of newsletter campaigns and, and we didn't sell anything. And so he sent me an email on a random December morning and it was like this isn't fun anymore I'm out. And I got really upset and I wasn't sure if I was upset at him for bailing on me or just upset that we couldn't sell any tickets. And for a good 2 weeks I really thought about quitting because no one knew we existed. So if we quit it's pretty much there's not much to lose except just the feeling of uh, I couldn't make it work. I really thought about quitting and my wife was like, "Well, if you quit and the next time something makes you unhappy and, and you get frustrated, how are you going to see it through? And she had a really good point. Up until that point, I just had been complaining a lot to her about work. And so I went back and I thought, okay, what am I doing wrong? So let me go talk to founders. I think I'm supposed to be targeting founders, but I don't know if this is what they care about. So I reached out to my network, talked to about 10 founders, and I asked them, where does culture rank in your list of priorities? A lot of founders told me, yeah, it's important but it's not as important as making payroll, as keeping the lights on, as doing sales. And one founder told me, well, I don't have the time to go, but I would send someone in my place. And that's when the light bulb went off for me. And I thought, oh, okay, so it's not necessarily founders that are the people who go to these events, but anyone in a company who can make a decision on culture. And so uh, with that nugget of knowledge, I went on LinkedIn And I just searched on anyone with the word culture in their title. So like chief culture officer or culture manager. And then the people that I found, I code emailed them. It was challenging at first because I had this dilemma where I wanted people to buy tickets to the event. But I didn't want to outright say, hey, would you like to buy tickets? Because it becomes very salesy. And I know that when you do code emails, people don't like to be sold, especially if they don't know who you are. So I had this dilemma I want them to buy tickets, but I don't want to really say buy tickets. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm inviting them and it's a free ticket because that's not the case. And I spent about a couple of days just stuck thinking about what I should write. And I decided, you know what, just just write something and then we'll fix it if you know people get the wrong impression or it's not working. So I said, okay, hey, I'm putting together this event. It's about culture. Here's what we're looking to solve. And I'd love to invite you to the event. And I felt like that was kind of simple enough that if they replied back and asked me, well, is it a free event? Is it paid? Then I'll figure it out then. So I did that. I sent it to about I probably emailed 30 people and I got a twenty five percent response rate. But the people who read the emails, they saw the site, they got it, and they would buy three and four tickets for their teens.
0: Based off a keyword search on LinkedIn for the word culture and emailing those people out out of the blue and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? I'm putting together this event.
1: Yeah, and I remember just having lunch with my wife, and I looked through my email, and I seen my very first order come in, and my heart was just racing, like, holy cow, I got an order. And then I clicked on it, and then I see in that one order, they bought three tickets, and I was just, like, super excited. And then for the people who bought tickets, I replied immediately, and I said, hey, thank you for buying tickets. Where do I find more people like yourself? And I would get on the phone with them, and they would tell me about these little pockets of communities that existed that aren't public, so you can't go on like a meetup and and find these communities. And I would just ask them, would you be able to promote it for me or promote my event to your communities? And they were happy to. And so the first year we did it, we had 225 people for the first conference. It was all word of mouth. It was very organic. For me, that was a kind of a defining moment that I needed to really just talk to my customers to learn more about where to find more people like themselves or like the type of product I was building if it made sense for them.
0: That's crazy to have over 200 people show up to this thing in year one from that moment of despair where you're thinking about giving up in December all the way to making it happen. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. And and the one thing I want to mention is that the first two years I ran it, it was a side venture. I still had a full-time job. I did this on the nights and on the weekends. It wasn't until I grew enough after the second year that I, I quit my job and went on this full-time. Yeah, the people
0: that I see doing events, like they have a built-in audience already where it's like, well, I'm just going to email my list. I'm going to sell some tickets. But it's like, to literally start from scratch, maybe you had a little bit of a network from working in the industry, but not 200 people willing to pay you. What was the ticket price at that
1: point? So we had three different tiers, but I would say the average price was about 300 which is pretty cheap when I look at a lot of events happening today. But it was a one-day event Average price was about three hundred dollars. Uh, we got five sponsors at twenty five hundred each, which again, pretty cheap compared to events these days. Yeah, it, it was such a validation on my point to be able to pull it off. If I had to do it again, I'd probably do a couple things differently, but at the time, it was it was a huge accomplishment.
0: If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Well, let's talk about that. Now, with four years or four of these under your belt, like what would you do differently from the get-go?
1: I would definitely not go gung-ho about it and say I'm going to do a, a conference. I think um, it was just too huge of a um, goal. Now, Even though I succeeded in achieving that goal, it was very taxing mentally, physically. I, there were a lot of nights where I'd never slept. And my biggest challenge was always figuring out how do I get people to buy buy tickets? So, if I had to do it over again, I would start off and just focus on building community. So, instead of just having, instead of doing this one big conference, uh, even though, you know, 225 isn't a large number, I think at the time for me it was, I would just start off and do like small events, maybe on a a monthly or quarterly basis. So, like small networking events or panel events and build the community base first. Cause it makes it a lot easier when you have people you can sell to, when you have people that know your brand that, you have trust with, when you've built relationships with potential speakers, that would have made things a lot easier for me to transition to a conference. And sure. so for anyone who wants to get into this space, I would say do smaller events first. It's, it's going to make things much easier for you. And, and if I did it over again, I would probably spend a year just doing small events, building my community base, and then transitioning to a, a large event.
0: Okay. Tell me about getting sponsors. So you said five sponsors at 2500 bucks each. What was that sales process
1: like? You know, it was pretty simple. I've been fortunate that I've never had to really work hard to sell sponsors. I just put together a pretty simple sponsorship deck. I didn't know what it's supposed to look like or what sponsors cared about, but I kind of Googled and, and found a couple of examples. And the one thing that was key for me was looking at who I attracted to the event, what roles they were in, what companies they came from, their demographic, and then finding companies where my attendees fit their customer base. So in this case, there were a lot of companies that built software that helped companies with understanding their culture analytics or doing benefits or performance management. So those companies, I knew that they would be potentially interested in sponsoring to get in front of my audience because I knew the people who came to Culture Summit would be the type of people that they would want to connect with to purchase their software. That was the key in kind of pitching my event. And I really didn't have a lot of uh, challenges. So I think I pitched five companies and all five said yes. Jeez, I guess that's a signal you're, you weren't charging. Me. I haven't gotten to a, a level where I can, can get a six-figure sponsor. I'm still working on that. But for the most part, every year we've sold out of our sponsorship packages. The key factor has been understanding who our community is, who comes to Culture Summit, and then finding the sponsors where they would pay to get access to that community.
0: Now, one rule of thumb, and you can tell me if I'm way off on this, that I've heard for events is that you want to cover your fixed costs with sponsors and then all ticket sales are gravy. Have you found that to be true?
1: It's not the case for, I think, for Culture Summit. For Culture Summit, 25% of our revenue comes from sponsorship and then 75% comes from ticket sales. But I, I will say that the rule applies in the sense that you want to get to break even ASAP. So, if let's say your overhead for doing an event is fifty thousand dollars, you want to get to break even. Everything else on top of that becomes gravy. So, if you can get if you can get fifty thousand in sponsorship, perfect. If you can get fifty thousand in ticket sales early on, perfect. And then everything else on top of that is just profit. So, not necessarily I wouldn't say sponsorship is what you should be targeting, but it helps a lot. And, and it's just a matter of what works for your event. I have friends who run events and they have like a 50-50 split with sponsors and ticket sales and then some have like a 60-40 veering more towards sponsorship so it's just what makes sense for, for your events
0: okay well let's talk about the cost structure or kind of like the logistics side of this so at a, at a certain point the venue no longer becomes tbd you have to like nail down and find a place to host this thing what was that like saying i, I want to get 200 people here but i don't know how many people are going to show up like it's, it's kind of a dance i imagine between yeah sales and trying to find a, a space.
1: Yeah, so I had never been to a conference, which is probably a a curse and a blessing, I guess, looking back. Had I been to a conference, like a real conference and and seen the production and how grand it is, I probably never would have done Culture Summit because in my mind, I would have felt like that's the target. That's what I'm, I'm striving to become, right? And so I probably never would have gone to that level. And because I've never been to a conference at that point, in my mind, I just felt like well, I'm going to get a pretty cheap venue. I'm going to try to get cheap everything. Not cheap in terms of quality, but cheap in terms of keeping costs down. So cheap venue, cheap food. The first year, I think my overhead was about 15000 The venue was in the basement of a co-working space. I think I paid about 2000 for that. I used an outside caterer for food, so kept it cheap. I bought all my own alcohol, brought it up in a U-Haul. We didn't even have an AV team. I had a friend who just sat with the computer, with <laughs> my computer, and kind of like moved the slides around as needed. So, looking back, it's kind of embarrassing that I call that a conference, but it worked and people enjoyed it. And so, after that first event, I started going to more conferences because I wanted to see what people were actually doing. And so, between the first and the second event, my overhead went from fifteen thousand to one hundred thousand because I wanted to up the level of production so that I could raise prices.
0: Wow, that's a big jump. Was that just hiring the AV staff? <laughs> like what all went into that?
1: For my events, a lot of the cost comes from venue, food. Those are the two biggest costs. And then uh, I think third would be like AV. Once I had the second conference, I really wanted a bigger space that that kind of, in my eyes, I wanted to legitimize Culture Summit. I think the first year was, was kind of uh, just more about proving that I could make it work, bring it to life. It wasn't really high quality. But the second year, I wanted something that really looked professional, looked legitimized. And so just getting a really nice venue, I think I paid about 20000 for the day. And then having a, a higher production value. So getting a real professional AV team, making sure that the space was decorated nicely. We had more people, some more food. Just, just a higher production value created a higher overhead.
0: If you're not doing it at a hotel, because I've heard hotels are just nuts expensive with their in-house staff and all the crazy wifi fees and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have you avoided that or was it at a hotel?
1: It wasn't at a hotel. I have a, like a particular brand that I wanted to go for. And so for me, I just wanted to avoid the uh, the hotel environment. Nothing wrong with that. I've been to like, conferences that are held at hotels and they're fine.
0: And you got to guarantee this many rooms get sold and all sorts of crazy stuff.
1: In particular for me, I just wanted a different venue. I didn't want a hotel. So for me, there's pros and cons to each. So I've looked at hotels too, and I've, I've gotten quotes. So with the hotel, everything is pretty much set there already. They have the space, they've got furniture, they've got catering, in-house AV teams. So everything's there for you, right? So there's, there's less work on you as that event producer to go out and search for all these vendors. But because everything is there and you're using all their in-house stuff, it's very hard to negotiate on pricing. So to give you an example, I had in my third year, I was targeting uh, 500 people across two days. And uh, I looked at a couple of hotels just to do my due diligence. And so when it came down to uh, thinking about food, they were quoting me $100 per person a day. Just food alone would have cost me $100,000, which is nuts in my mind. For me, just being a bootstrap entrepreneur, I'm not paying $100,000 just for food. Now, the route I went, which is getting a venue space, and that was the equivalent of having a blank canvas, right? So I just rented the venue, but now I was responsible for finding my own vendors for furniture, for AV, for food. In a sense, it's good that I can do that because it helps me control prices, but it became a lot more work because now I had to coordinate with so many different moving pieces. If I were to do both, I think price-wise, it might come out to be the same sort of depending on how I negotiate. But I think it's a matter of what your preference is. If you uh, wanted to have like a different brand, it might create more work, but you can control kind of how the conference looks. Whereas if you wanted things to be more efficient, streamlined, you can go with the hotel and everything's there in one spot.
0: Were attendees primarily local to the Bay Area or did you have people flying in from all over the place?
1: So the first year we did it, it was very local. I think I had maybe two attendees fly in from out of town. The second year we did it, we have attendees from five continents fly in, which is phenomenal. I always get excited when I see attendees who make the trip overseas because I'm eager to learn how they heard about it. I don't do a lot of advertising outside the U.S. I think the first two years I just advertised strictly within the U.S. And then our third year we started targeting Canada because we saw people were coming a lot from Canada. But we don't really target beyond the US and Canada. So people who come overseas, they either find us through YouTube or word of mouth or some other means.
0: So tell me about these different marketing channels. Like, is it still like this bootstrap LinkedIn, you know, guerrilla warfare one-on-one sales or what else is going on these days?
1: It changes a lot, you know, and I think that's the thing about entrepreneurship is you have to really pay attention to how the conditions change and then adapt appropriately. So the first year was all word of mouth doing a lot of LinkedIn code email reach. And when I tried that the second year, it didn't work as well. So the people I I had reached out to LinkedIn, they weren't responding. They weren't even opening my emails. I had, again, tried to ask people to promote it. And some people did, some people didn't. I think uh, they just maybe felt like they had done it already. So they did me a favor. So I had to find out other ways to get more visibility. So I started experimenting with Facebook ads um, that worked pretty well. So the second year, we did some Facebook ads. We did a lot of cross promotions. Uh, the third year, more of the same. This year, I think my cost for acquisition from Facebook ads just doubled in price. So I was probably paying $100 to get an attendee. And this year, I paid close to $200. So again, the landscape is changing. I'm not sure why that's the case. But I think for any entrepreneur, it's just really having a pulse on on what's working, what's not working, and then trying to adapt as you go
0: yeah absolutely. There's always there's it's always something plus I imagine people if they like the event, they'll come back the following year, you know, your best customers are your or your previous customers in a lot of cases. Did you have to pay speakers, or do you pay speakers from year one or if maybe that's changed over time?
1: We don't. So part of the reason is because it's a bootstrap operation. So I just don't have the budget to pay speakers. And now the first year I did it, it was all local speakers I did that intentionally just to make it easy for the speakers to come speak. The second and third and fourth years, uh, what I've done is I've put together what we call kind of like travel reimbursement. So we pay up to $1,000 for speakers for their hotel and airfare. Eventually, I would like to get to a place where we can pay our speakers something. But for now, we just don't make enough that we can afford to pay our speakers. But we do try to build things in place to make it worth it for them. So giving them a lot of visibility, giving them a lot of access to the community trying to help out with their travel fees. So, there are other ways we, we try to work to make it worth it for speakers to come out and give us their time.
0: I was just curious about that from the standpoint of like, yeah, yeah, you're asking, especially if a two-day event, asking somebody to take some time
1: off of work
0: and potentially travel across the country and prepare a talk and do all this stuff. So, <laughs> I guess it's refreshing to hear that like, hey, you know, starting out, they volunteered because... They liked you or they believed in the mission.
1: Yeah. And for the speakers, they really enjoy what they're doing. A lot of our speakers aren't professional speakers. So they don't go around and, you know, they have like a speaking tour or something. They're just leaders inside companies who want to share more about what they're doing in their companies with more of like people in the space who are passionate about culture. And and there's a thing I really enjoy about the community is that it's a community of people who love people. Meaning they care about helping each other. They care about sharing best practices. I think I had an attendee tell me once, she said, this is the only event I go to where I see representatives from competing companies sharing best practices, which I thought was pretty cool. And so, the speakers are always happy to be involved. I think for the most part, if you cover their expenses, they're happy to, to donate their time and their expertise. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's really cool. So, after a year two, you say, okay, I'm going all in on this. Was that a revenue thing? Or was that a dissatisfaction with your current job thing? What was the leap like to turn it into
1: your main focus? It was sort of perfect timing with everything. By year two, I did six figures in revenue. And so just to give you a comparison, I think the first year we did 50,000 in revenue. And then by year two, we, we tripled it. And at the same time, the writing was on the wall for me at work. Not me necessarily, but uh, my team. And so it was kind of perfect timing where you know my team we kind of felt like because of a reorg we might all get laid off okay and then Coach summit grew enough where if i wanted to take that risk i could afford to now i did have to make some sacrifices so my wife and i were living on our own at the time we had an apartment and uh, one night we sat down and i kind of explained to her what was going on what i wanted to do and I also knew that if I wanted to really grow Coach Summit and make it something substantial and impactful, I had to devote 100% of my time into it. I couldn't really treat it as a side project anymore. And it was tough. I wasn't sure what to expect having this talk with my wife, but she was super supportive. And she, was, she The only thing she said was, okay, well, I guess we're moving back to my parents to, to just save on rent, which is, I thought, one of the best things that she could ever say to me. Okay. Because she could have easily said, no, we can't afford you not having a job or, you know, no you gotta go look for something else. But she just saw how unhappy I was all those years and to finally find something that gave me purpose and excitement and and she saw how much I wanted to really build it out, She just said, hey, we'll make it work. With all those things happening kind of around the same time, it just made the transition easier for me. But it still wasn't easy. I think the first day I kind of woke up and realized, I don't longer have a job, but I have this business I'm trying to grow. It was just very daunting. Like, okay, what do I do now? It's been fun, a fun journey.
0: Absolutely. What's, what's coming down the pipe? Where do you see this thing going in the next few years?
1: This is my fourth year. I think heading into this year, I was starting to feel burned out just because events are very taxing and very tiring and um, mentally I was getting burned out. And I also felt like as an entrepreneur, I wasn't growing enough. I didn't want to be an events guy. I wanted to be able to do more with the business. And so I felt like if I couldn't evolve the business, I don't know if I can keep doing it. And so this year, one of the things I did was I had to take a step back. And instead of just looking at the business as a conference, really having that bird's eye view and looking at the industry as a whole and seeing what doesn't exist in the industry today and you know what holes can I fill. What I've been fortunate enough to have is to build a community of thousands of what we call culture champions over the years who come to the event, who subscribe to the newsletter, and they're basically my customer base. And for me, it's just a matter of talking to them. Again, similar to four years ago when I went out there and I interviewed founders, now I talk to the community, trying to get a really good sense of where are you struggling in your role today in building culture and seeing what patterns emerge and then understanding what are some possible things I can build to solve those problems, whether there are courses or maybe building a, a membership subscription site, or even maybe just expanding the event to another country? So I've got a couple of different options on the plate, and it's just a matter of looking at what I can do with the, uh, the resources I have and what makes sense for the business. But the good thing is that we're growing, we're expanding, and uh, you know, there's a lot of ways I can take the business over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, it's really cool what you've been able to build and the opportunities that are in front of you based on the, the community that's come together for Culture Summit. So I'm excited for it and excited to see where take it take you from here. Again, culturesummit.co, culturesummit.co if you want to check it out. Hung, appreciate you joining me, man. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation.
1: Whatever your ideas that you want to build, try to figure out if you can test it out without having a fully fledged build out a product or uh, a business or a feature, what can I do to experiment? Or what? What's the kind of the basic version I can build that I can just put out in the market and test quickly? And so, a, a good book to read is The Lean Startup. I'm a big proponent of that methodology. I think it's what helps a lot of entrepreneurs get from paralysis analysis to just actually going out there and building and learning and iterating
0: hundred percent. I can see the lean startup methodology from basically from start to finish on this thing. It's very cool. And even from the, the events that you're helping to teaching the lean startup methodology, it's apparent that that has rubbed off. So Hung, again, appreciate you joining me and we'll catch up with you soon.
1: Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Hung. Number one is to find your people. Don't wait for them to find you. Hung could have put up his placeholder website with his four or five speakers and waited for people to find it, kind of a build it and they'll come strategy. But he didn't. And he didn't have an audience to sell to either. So he had to kind of do this direct outreach to the people he knew could benefit most from his event. I really loved his LinkedIn approach and probably more importantly, the follow-up after people bought. Who else do you know? Where can I find more people like you? Would you be willing to share this? Those initial customers and conversations are really what allowed him to spider into the HR world and specifically the subtopic of company culture. This was one failure point of mine in the only paid event that I've tried to host that was more than like five bucks. I had the idea to do a one-day group Mastermind in Chicago following a conference following podcast movement that I was attending. And I targeted people on my email list based on geography. Hey, are you in Illinois, Wisconsin? Are you are you nearby? And I sold a few tickets doing that, but probably I could have sold way more with the one-on-one outreach like Hung described. And ultimately I whisked out and pulled the plug on the event altogether because I didn't get enough interest. And of course, after I did that, a few more people sent me notes and were like, dude, is this thing still happening? I'm in. I was like, how come you couldn't have bought tickets a week ago? As such is the nature of live events. A lot of people are going to wait to the last minute and that can be stressful from a planning perspective. So that's takeaway number one, you know, go out and find your people proactively. You can't wait for them to find you. Takeaway number two is to start lean. And we mentioned the lean startup. I actually think it's pretty rare for conferences like Hung's to make money in their first year. So I commend uh, Hung for pulling off that feat. And I think he did it in a pretty savvy way, keeping expenses low, targeting customers with a budget for tickets and sponsorships and not committing himself to expenses until he had the sales to back those up. A lot of times venues are going to ask for a big upfront deposit or hotels specifically are going to ask you to guarantee a big block of rooms, which can be really, really scary, especially for a first or second year conference without a lot of track record. You don't know if those sales are eventually going to come. So that's takeaway number two is to start a lean. And takeaway number three is to go small first. In Hunk's case, this is totally a do as I say and not as I do bit of advice, but he said throwing the 225 person conference as his first event came at a cost. He talked about the stress over selling tickets and the sleepless nights, and what he might do differently was to start smaller, to build that community that he has now with a series of smaller meetups, networking nights, or panel discussions. Maybe you sell tickets, maybe you don't, but in either case, as the organizer, put yourself at the center of that gathering and it builds authority. And that authority opens up the doors to serve that community in other ways, like what Hung is talking about doing for his his next act or to move beyond just the conference. But what do you think? Viable side hustle? Are you excited to start planning an event of your own? Would you attend a Side Hustle Nation event if one was convenient for you? Once again, notes and links for this one are at sidehustlenation.com slash Hung, H-U-N-G. And that's it for me. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.